Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you uh, again this morning. This past week, I, I texted Joel to ask him about something or tell him about something, whatever reason. And I told him I was sorry to interrupt his weeding in his garden. And he said, now is not the time to weed, now is the time to reap. And indeed, I've uh, been noticing our counter getting fuller and fuller this week of tomatoes and beans of various shapes and sizes. That's a <clears throat> good time to be enjoying, to begin to be enjoying the fruits of, of the garden. If, if you have a garden, if that's your thing. And really, in, uh, in many ways, we can see the story of the Bible as the story of the garden uh, or through the lens of a garden, right? We, we began our story in the garden with Adam and Eve. Uh, but because of transgression, because of sin, because of yielding to temptation, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and put into the wilderness, away from a place that is cultivated and fruitful, and into a, a realm, into a domain where now the ground is cursed. And by sweat and toil and thorn and thistle, man earns his bread from the ground. And we see that story again in the life of the nation of Israel, as, as God's people live existence in, in the wilderness, go through the wilderness, facing temptation and, and trial, looking for that inheritance of God's promised land. And, and that inheritance is, is ours in the fullest sense. As we look to the end of the Bible, what our inheritance is. Life again restored in a garden, a garden city with, again, a tree of life in the middle of it. And of course, in the middle of, of Scripture's grand story is a garden. Jesus going to the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus being crucified, and Jesus being buried in a garden tomb. And so, of course, it is no surprise, or it should, should come as no surprise, that the first person to see Jesus when he rises from the dead mistakes him for a gardener. Or in many ways, yes, Jesus, as God his Father, is the gardener. More than that, or along with that, we see Jesus as, as the great trailblazer for us, the true and better Joshua who grants his people an inheritance in the promised land from the wilderness. Jesus has gone through the wilderness. Jesus has succeeded where Israel failed, in facing temptation in a land of desolation. And we see that in, in today's passage Matthew chapter 4. I invite you again to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 as we read the first 11 verses of Jesus in the wilderness. The Word of God says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus as we have read about this morning already from Hebrews chapter 4, the reminder that, that Jesus came as our great high priest. As we read in Hebrews 4 and as we read in Matthew 4, Jesus was tempted in all the same ways that we are, yet without sin. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has conquered temptation. Jesus has conquered the devil. Jesus has conquered the wilderness to become our faithful and merciful high priest, to lead us through this life to our promised inheritance. And Lord, we pray this morning that we would indeed follow in the steps of Jesus, that we would live the life that he lives in us and through us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we we began what has turned into a two-week inspection of sin and temptation by looking at at James chapter 1. And what we really see in James chapter 1, what James focuses on, particularly in verses 13 through 18, is, is the kind of mindset that we have to have as we face temptation and if we are going to overcome temptation. And we saw last week three foundational truths that we have to accept and live on if we are going to overcome temptation in our life. The first one from James chapter 1 is that you are fully responsible for your actions. James says in chapter 1 verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. If you are going to face temptation honestly, if you're going to overcome temptation victoriously, you must accept this truth. That is, it is your desire that temptation latches on to. Each one is tempted when he is tempted and led away by his own desire. Now, as, as James later talks about, we are tempted by, by the devil. We are tempted by the world, by things around us. 
But as we talked about last week, those temptations are only effective as they latch on to our desires. Right? We, are, we are not tempted to do things we don't desire. Right? I, to remind you, I've never been tempted to be a glutton on cauliflower or broccoli because I hate those things. So James recognizes, and as we see in Matthew chapter 4, yes, we are tempted by the devil. We are tempted by the world. But the strength, the power, the effectiveness of that temptation is when those temptations latch on to something that is wrong, a desire within us that is either inappropriate or out of perspective. We are responsible for our actions. Secondly, God is good. God is good by nature. And he says in James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. God is good by nature. God, God is so good that he can't be tempted with evil. Right? Does it, now that, that should make sense to us as we think about it. Right? If, if the problem with our sin is that sin and temptation latches onto our desires that are sinful, we should see that there is no bad desire in God. And because, there is by, because God is by nature good, because he only desires what is good and pure and lovely, there's nothing about sin or temptation that can, that can latch onto God because God is good in his nature. But God is good also in his disposition, in his action toward us. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. God does not tempt you with evil. And he goes on to say, in fact, God only gives every good and perfect gift. He gives it invariably. He is the father of lights, and there is no shadow due to change. God is good by nature and by disposition. And we have to believe, thirdly, that deliverance is possible. Right? James, in the middle of this, says, do not be deceived in 1.16. Now, what is he talking about? First of all, I believe he's talking about our understanding of the nature of God, that, that God is good, that God does not send temptation to us, but that aspect of do not being deceived is to recognize God's goodness is such that he gives us a way to escape temptation. That God's goodness is such that he provides deliverance from temptation. And we see that as, as he goes on to talk about the word. By the word of truth, he brought us forth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God gave us birth. God made us his children by his word. And just a few sentences later, he reminds us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And he returns to that, this aspect of deceiving ourselves, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the he is like a man who looks into a mirror and forgets what he is like. So James says, don't be deceived about where sin comes from. It's because you have desires that are perverted or wrong. 
Don't be deceived about where sin comes from. It doesn't come from God because God is good in his nature and in his action toward us. So putting that together, don't be deceived about deliverance. Don't be hopeless. Deliverance is possible. And we see this morning in Matthew chapter 4 a little bit more clearly how that is worked out. How we should face temptation in a more uh, practical way. James is sort of there in chapter 1 giving us the mindset, these foundational truths. But in Matthew chapter 4, we see in action what temptation looks like. We see the wiles of the devil. We see what he tries to do, how temptation works in these three instances, and how it is overcome. So returning to James chapter 4, verse 1. We see that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And quickly here, I think this, if you're paying attention, this presents a couple of problems potentially right away with what we just read about in James. Wait a minute. Didn't you just say that God doesn't tempt anyone with evil? What does it say here in Matthew 4.1? Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. I thought James says God doesn't tempt people with evil. And here he says the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to be tempted. Is the Holy Spirit not God? Maybe the Holy Spirit is a little bit less. And, and the Holy Spirit, well, maybe the Father doesn't tempt us, but the Holy Spirit will tempt us. Is that what is going on here? Well, well of course not. Who is the one doing the tempting in this passage? In Matthew chapter 4. It's very clear who it is. The tempter. The devil. Satan. It is a hard truth. It is a humbling truth. God leads us at times. Or puts us into a place where we might be tempted. Where we are tempted even though he himself does not do the tempting. Why else would we pray every week, lead us not into temptation? God does this sometimes. God has done it from the very beginning. Did God have to put that tree right in the middle of the garden? God put Adam and Eve in a place where temptation, where sin was possible even though God does not do the tempting. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, wait a minute. You just said in James that God cannot be tempted with evil. But here it says Jesus is tempted with evil. So is Jesus not God? Because he's tempted? Or is Jesus maybe not man because, well, he wasn't really tempted? We're, we're stepping now into this aspect of, of the impeccability of Christ. Was it possible for Jesus to sin? I think I'm going to leave the answer to that more fully to Joel. For the next few weeks, you can ask him, was it possible for Jesus to sin? But I'll just remind you of what your confession of faith says in chapter 8. 
Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, his human nature and his divine nature. By each nature, doing what is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. What's going on here? Right. Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. Now, does God have a mother? Does God have a mother? No. Does Jesus have a mother? Yes. So does God have a mother? Does God have blood? Is he a flesh? Does God have blood? No. Does Jesus have blood? God has blood, and we are redeemed by that blood. We are bought by the blood of God, as Paul says in Romans. We are here in a mystery that Jesus is, is fully man. And in his manhood, in his humanity, he didn't live six inches off the ground. He wasn't just floating on air, as you talked about this morning, tiptoeing through the tulips. Right? He was flesh and blood. Jesus, the man, was tired. He got hungry, as we read about this morning. He caught colds. He had to have his diaper changed. Jesus was a man and faced everything that men do. So when Jesus faces this temptation, he is facing this temptation as one of us. What then do we see about temptation? First of all, there are some overall considerations of temptations. What do we learn about temptation from this overall? First of all, we see that temptation comes in a particular time and place. When does this temptation come? Well, if we look back at the, the last few verses of, of Matthew chapter 3, we see that it comes right after Jesus' baptism. Right after Jesus is baptized into the Jordan River and the Spirit comes down and the word of the Father is heard after this great revelation and experience and exposure of, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, this great spiritual victory. Now, he's into the wilderness. Now, he's facing temptation. Temptation can come after a time of victory. But we see the circumstance of his temptation. It is when Jesus is weak, physically, and when he is alone. Satan will attack us. Temptation will attack us when we are weak and when we are alone. And we see the place of temptation in, in the wilderness. Again, in the place where Jesus is weak and alone. But, but right, the wilderness, again, as we think back to the Old Testament, is the area, the realm of temptation. But if you think about temptation in your own life, you realize that you, you, you have a place of temptation. Right? You have a wilderness, even if it is not the desert. Right? You have 
your car on the way home from work or you have your bedroom late at night with your smartphone in your hand. You have it in the morning before you spend time with the Lord or in the evening after you've had a long day. You have, you have as you examine your life, that place, that time, that circumstances, that circumstance where over and over again temptation comes because over and over again temptation is successful. We see that temptation comes to all, even those who are being led by the Spirit. You can be doing everything as, as far as in your power and, and trusting in the Lord. You can be doing everything right. You can be living a life that is pleasing to the Lord as best you know how and in the power of the Spirit. And temptation still comes. Living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, living a life pleasing to the Lord does not remove you from temptation. As we see, it was in the Spirit that Jesus was led into the wilderness. So with all that being said about the general ways that temptation comes, let us look at then and focus on these three temptations. The first temptation after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, a little bit of, I think, understatement, he was hungry. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan appears to care for our physical well-being. I mean, wouldn't you like to have, honestly, wouldn't you like to have a friend like the devil? Wouldn't you like to have someone in your life that, that can see you and say, hey, you, you look tired. Hey, you look worn down. You, you need to, to take a break. How, how about I give you some comfort and, and relief from the struggle? Just take it easy and get something to eat. Get something to drink. Just relax. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to have that kind of friend in a high-pressure, high anxiety situation, someone that can just say, hey, hey, let's, let's take a breath. Satan appears to care for our physical well-being. That is attractive to us. And the strategy of temptation, that it, it appeals to our physical appetite. You're hungry. Have something to eat. It, appear, it appeals here to physical hunger. But obviously, as we consider temptation and sin and desire, we expand that out. Temptation appears to appeals to our desires, our desires to consume, to have more. And the lie of temptation we see here is that it's no big deal, right? It's no big deal deal. I mean, <laughs> how can we even consider this a sin? I mean, I, I spent years and years ago when I was still in college, I spent a summer in, in this land, in the land of Israel. And one thing I can tell you that they have a lot of is rocks. And I can tell you that if somebody took a rock, they wouldn't miss it. 
If somebody turned a rock into a loaf of bread, it wouldn't be missed. I mean, can you even consider this a temptation? How is this sin? Here's a rock. Just turn it into bread and eat it. Who's hurt? Who's hurt by this? I mean, it's not like you're taking, taking bread from anybody. No one is even going to know. But what is it, really? It is a temptation for Jesus to use his, his sonship as God to, to sort of forget for a moment that you're a man and just turn this into bread in a way that is inconsistent with his God-ordained mission. The Spirit wanted Jesus to fast right now. Is it a sin to eat bread when you're hungry? Is that a sin? I hope not because, you know, in a little bit, many of you are going to be upstairs eating potatoes. Why? Well, because, of course, you're holy people and you love fellowshipping with one another. But you're hungry, and eating is good when you're hungry. But there was a time, or there is a time, and this time is now for Jesus, when God says, don't eat right now. So the promise of temptation is, is you will find relief. Right? You are struggling right now. Your life is hard. The circumstance is, you've, you've endured enough. Now is the time to find relief. Stop suffering. Just do it and feel better. This is no big deal. And so what does Jesus respond? How, what is the word of the Lord in this temptation? Jesus' answer to this argument of temptation is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'll read the first couple of verses for context. Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 1, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. How did Jesus understand this temptation? Jesus understood this temptation by recognizing that there are no little commandments. Jesus was tempted by the devil to say, hey, I mean, a rock into a loaf of bread. No one is even going to know. It's no big deal. It's eating. It's something we all have to do. But what does God say in, in Deuteronomy 8? The whole commandment will proceed out of every word. So Jesus confronts this temptation by the confession that there are no little sins, that every sin is a big deal. And Jesus recognizes that that this temptation is an opportunity to reveal what his heart is like. Why did God put the children of Israel in the wilderness? Why did God put his son in the wilderness? 
He humbles you and lets you hunger that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Jesus recognized that this temptation and every t- the, the temptations like it are an opportunity to reveal what my heart is like. Whether my heart is going to trust God for everything, even my daily bread, or whether I'm going to take by my own power, my own strength, and step outside of what God will God's will is to provide for me at this moment. Hearing and obeying the word of God is the most important thing in life. That's what Jesus is saying here in his quotation of Matthew chapter 8. He is saying that existence is not merely physical, right? Do we need bread to eat? Do we need to eat and drink to live? Yes, we do. We do. We need bread and water and drink to live. And, that, and God recognizes that, right? Man shall not live by bread alone. There is something more. There is something greater that we need. There is another fuel for existence than only bread and drink. Jesus is saying my existence is not merely physical. That I will not be ruled by the appetites of my body. I will submit to God's rule over them. I will not trust in myself or in my own strength or my own will to meet my needs or to find fulfillment or relief. I will rely on what God is providing for me. Israel demanded bread in the wilderness and they died. Jesus denied himself bread and lived by faithful submission to every word coming out of God's mouth. So how do, how do you respond to this kind of temptation? Do you think that, that it is no big deal? Or where do you find strength for living? What is, what is the daily bread that you can't live without? Jesus here shows us that the lies and the promises of temptation are to be confronted with the truth. Right? The truth of recognizing what you really need. The lies and the promises of sin are answered with true judgment. That I can survive without this pleasure. But I can't survive without God's word. Second temptation the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now in the first temptation, we saw that, that the devil can be a really good friend. He can be a really nice guy, caring for us. In the second temptation, we see that the devil knows Scripture and knows how to interpret it rightly. The devil responds to Jesus' quotation of Scripture. Ah, quotation of Scripture. I, I can quote Scripture with you, Jesus. And the devil turns to Psalm 91. And I, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 91 and see how well the devil applies and quotes Scripture. 
Psalm 91, 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, a curious thing happened with Psalm 91 over the past couple years. Psalm 91 has become, in the past couple years, one of the most searched references in Scripture. Right? And it's because of COVID. Right? It's because uh, initially when COVID began, some doctors and nurses just latched on to Psalm 91 and took this as, as God's promise to them, which, which we tend to do. Understandably, you know, we want to hear God's word to us. But they read Psalm 91, this great promise of protection when, when thousands are falling at your right and left, that, that God will protect me as I serve these people suffering from COVID. But what is this psalm about? Who is it about? First and foremost, this psalm is about who all the scripture is about, Jesus. And the devil rightly understands that. The devil says, hey, Jesus, I know this is talking about you. God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So on the one hand, we see that that the devil knows scripture well, and he interprets it rightly. I dare, I, I would dare to say that, that the devil could write a pretty decent systematic theology if he set his mind to it. But he is not afraid to boldly, boldly take scripture out of context. Because the very next verse where the devil cuts off quoting says this, you will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The very next verse is a verse that's, that predicts, that prophesies that this one who the, the Lord upholds is going to trample the devil underfoot. <laughs> going back to God's very first promise of redemption in Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The devil is is not afraid to boldly misuse scripture. So what is the devil's strategy of temptation here? It is to appeal to the pride of self, right? The devil says, I know who you are, and, and you know who you are. Right? All of these, these repeated statements, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, could really and possibly should be translated since you are the son of God. That's sort of the Greek construction there. And it makes sense considering that's just what happened in Matthew 3. So the devil knows who Jesus is. Jesus knows who Jesus is. And sometimes that's our problem. We know who we are. Our, our tendency is, is to take sometimes God's promises and to try to take advantage of them. What What is the lie of temptation? Is that it is safe to sin. God will take care of you. That, that's the lie that temptation is making here. It is safe to do something reckless and dangerous. It is safe to go out of bounds because God will take care of you. And it, is, it is the attitude demonstrated by, by a German poet by the name of Heinrich Heine, who, who lived a life of, of rebellion and atheism 
And at the end of his life, he's on his deathbed, and a priest comes to him and asks, what are you going to say to the Lord? And Heinrich Heine says, God will forgive. That's his business. That's the attitude. It is the promise of temptation, again, from the very beginning, that it makes, you will not surely die. Nothing bad will happen. How does Jesus respond to this temptation? From Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. Jesus says, my security is in submission to the Lord. I don't... I don't take advantage of my status to push the boundaries, to try to see how far I can get, how far is far enough, or how far is too far. That is not my heart. My heart is to be submissive to the Lord and never to do anything that puts the Lord to the test. One one Puritan was asked, what what do we do with the person who says, ah, if I, if I sin, I can always repent. He said, he who promised forgiveness to those who repent has not promised repentance to those who sin. Do not think that, that you can just, well, First John 1, 9. If, if I sin, I'll just ask forgiveness and God will forgive me and that's his business. That's what God will do. In the wilderness, Israel tested God and they failed to inherit his promises. Jesus, was, Jesus refused to test God and was victorious over temptation. Right? Is, maybe this is the way that temptation is effective in your life. It doesn't matter. Right? You go to church every week. You have the Lord's Supper. You've been baptized. God will take care of you. Ah, I'm free in Christ. All things are lawful for me. God's grace is greater than all my sin. Let's continue in sin that grace may abound. I've been committing this sin for 20 years and nothing bad has happened. How bad can it be? God must not care that much. (laughs) Don't believe this lie of temptation. Don't believe that that God just will overlook and, and intercede and interpose himself automatically because you've somehow someday made a decision for Christ or you've done this good thing or because you are God's child. Don't be mocked. God is not mocked. Don't put him to the test. The heart that puts God to the test is not a trusting heart. And the third temptation, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan is willing to bargain. Right? Satan will make a deal with you. <laughs> Satan can play that game. Let's make a deal. And Satan can make big promises. Like, this is a pretty big promise that Satan makes to Jesus. I'll give you everything. I mean, is this even a promise that he could make? 
I mean, if, if I, for some crazy reason, would come to you and say, hey, I'll give you a million dollars if you just do this, would you do it? I would hope not. I would hope there would be no reason for you to do it because you realize I don't have a million dollars to give you. But if Elon Musk or Bill Gates came to you and said, I'll give you a million dollars to do this. Ah, here's somebody who can pay up. Can Satan make this kind of promise? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world? Indeed he could. In Luke's account of this very event, Satan says, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been given to me to give to whoever I will. In John 12, 31, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul calls Satan the god of this world. In 1 John 5, 19, John calls, says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan could, could do this. It was in his power, in his authority, according to Satan himself, according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to John, according to God. So what is the strategy of this temptation then? It appeals, it appeals to our desire for ease, right? For the easy way out. It appeals, temptation appeals for our desire for quick solutions to troublesome problems. Think about it. All the kingdoms of the world. Who's going to get all the kingdoms of the world? Whose are they, really? Jesus's. Right now, Satan has been given power, been given authority. But they all, they all belong to Jesus because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. But we do not yet see all things under his feet. What is Satan promising him? I'll give you everything. Just take the quick way out. You can have all of the blessings that God promises you without the bother of obedience. And the promise of temptation is, it will be worth it. I can give you all the promises of God that he seems to be holding back. I can give it to you faster, and I can give it to you easier. You want happiness? You want peace? You want security? You want pleasure? I can give it to you now. Just fall down and worship me. In 1980, Rosie Ruiz won the Boston Marathon in two hours and 30 minutes. That was an incredible time. In fact, it was the fastest time that any woman had ever run the Boston Marathon. That's 26 miles. In fact, it was the third fastest marathon that any woman had ever run. But pretty much right away, there were some wonders, like, People looked at her at the finish line and, and like, man, she looks really good. I don't know if you've ever run 26 miles. <laughs> I've run five miles, I think, once or twice. And after that, I didn't look so hot. Like, she looks really good for running 26 miles in one of the fastest times ever. And people looked at her legs and 
people do this when you're with other runners or bikers or athletes. They, they, they look at what you've got. Like, now her thighs, I know, what, I know what runner's thighs look like. And those thighs, they're a little big. One of the men began to ask her, what were your splits? Like, how fast did you run? Five, 10, 15, your splits. And she couldn't give an answer. They're asking, what did you think of this part of the race? What did you think of this part of the race? And, and she couldn't answer. And a week later, it was eight days later, it was revealed that, that Rosie Ruiz had started the Boston Marathon, left the course, went to the end of the course, waited a little while, and just jumped out about half a mile from the end and won the Boston Marathon. That's right. We've, we've all got a little Rosie Ruiz in us, I think, at times. Let's, who wants to run 26 miles? Not me. I'll just run that half mile, though. What is Jesus' response to that? Again, from Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 and 14. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. What, what was Jesus saying here? What is Jesus saying in answering this temptation? Jesus is saying, my joy, and this, this is a crucial distinction, my joy is in the Lord and not in his gifts. Jesus says, I reject the philosophy that, that the ends justify the means. In the wilderness, the children of Israel got sick of waiting on Moses and the Lord. Why, why doesn't Moses come down from that mountain? Let's get on with this. So they had Aaron make a golden calf so they could get on with their journey. Let's get to the promised land. Let's go. We don't have time. Jesus, in the wilderness, determined that loving God, loving God, was more important than having his blessings. How do you respond to temptation? Is this how temptation latches onto your desires? God's way is too long and God's way is too difficult. God is holding out on you. He's making it too hard. Take the easy way out and avoid the struggle that comes with obedience. Why? Why are you obeying? Is it just for God's blessings? Or is it for God himself? If you are only obeying for God's blessings, you're opening yourself up to temptation. Because eventually, sooner or later, you'll find maybe that the blessings aren't worth waiting for. That the blessings aren't worth struggling for. Because they were never meant to be. What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So how does temptation attack you? What strategy does the tempter use to arouse your desires to sin? Perhaps it is your desire to quit, 
your desire to get over the suffering of obedience with the relief of a little physical pleasure. So you say it's no big deal. No one will ever know. Perhaps it is your pride. You think you are above the rules. This doesn't apply to me. What is the use of saying no? I've sinned before and asked forgiveness. Or I'll just do it again. Or I've been doing this for years and nothing bad has happened. God must not care too much. Or it is idolatry. Perhaps you're only in it for the payoff. And temptation comes and promises you everything that God does, but with none of the hassle. Your your temptation promises you, as it does with Jesus, the crown without the cross, the glory without Gethsemane. So how how do we then fight and face temptation? We We live and fight temptation by living this life of Christ. We do well then to consider, again, in summary, how did Jesus overcome temptation? Jesus demonstrated discernment about the true nature of temptation. Temptation isn't really about hunger and bread. It isn't really about reckless acts. It really isn't about one-off feel-good-now or get-rich-quick schemes. What is the devil trying to do in these temptations? The devil is trying to adopt Jesus as his son. The devil is saying, Jesus, I can provide provision. I can offer you provision. I can offer you protection. I can give you an inheritance. The devil is saying, let me be your father. And that is what temptation is doing with us. It's saying, let me meet your needs. Find your provision. Find your protection. Find your fulfillment in what I can offer you. Jesus saw through that and recognized that God was his father and it was God that he owed his allegiance and trust. Jesus demonstrated a deep knowledge of scripture. As we struggle and face temptation, we're often encouraged to search out those verses that, that specifically target temptation, whether it's theft, you know, stealing or coveting or lust, you know, we're encouraged to look for verses that target that temptation. Jesus didn't demonstrate that kind of knowledge of scripture. I don't think Jesus was worried, man, you know, someday, I bet bet someday the devil is going to tempt me to turn stones into bread, so I need to memorize Deuteronomy 8. How did, how did Jesus respond with Scripture to these temptations? Because he had spent time in Scripture for the sake of having Scripture transform or guide his life and thought. Jesus' evidence is that he read Scripture not just broadly, but deeply. And so when temptation came, the spirit who breathed out scripture, the spirit who led Jesus to this place, was able to bring to mind the scripture, the word of God that Jesus could use to confront temptation. Jesus demonstrates a keen understanding of the connection between the physical and the spiritual, their connection and the priority of the one which does not devalue the importance of the other. And this is 
I think, seen in the first two temptations, individually and how they relate to one another. In the first temptation, man does not live by bread alone. And it's as if, it's if, as if the devil says, right, because he knows we like to go to extremes. Right? We like to go to one extreme or the other. Oh, the body's not important? Well, then just jump down from this building since the body's not important and the spirit is all that matters. No, your body does matter. What you do with your body matters. What you eat and how you eat and how you drink and what you drink matters. How you treat your body matters. And when you mistreat your body, you should expect spiritual problems. Your body matters, but the desires of your body must be put under the rule of the Holy Spirit. Calling on the Lord for strength and relying on the filling of the Spirit. You must train yourself to say no to the desires of the body and prioritize the needs of your spirit. We should consider one more time, remember that that this happened when Jesus was fasting, a fast of 40 days. Something tells me that this wasn't Jesus' first fast, that Jesus didn't just decide one day, hey, I think a fast is a good idea. How about a 40-day fast? I don't have a word from the Lord on that. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm guessing, I'm imagining. But could it be that Jesus was able and empowered and strengthened by the Spirit to say no to physical temptations in a time of temptation because Jesus had made it a practice, a habit, to say no to his fleshly desires through things like fasting and praying. We should not expect supernatural resources in the day of battle if we've not prepared for battle. By training ourselves, as Paul says, keeping my body under subjection to face temptation. And finally, Jesus esteemed God more valuable than his blessings. Jesus had a settled determination to pursue the will of the Father for the glory of the Father in obedience to the Father regardless of personal cost. Right? What, what does it mean to say, whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What am I going to do with all the kingdoms of the world if I don't have God? What am I going to do with a house with five bedrooms and three bathrooms if I don't have God? Where do we find the strength to live this way? We find the strength to live this way in the words we read at the very beginning of our service from Hebrews. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has conquered temptation and he can help you do the same. The life that he lived, he can live through you. You can live in him. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast. Don't quit. Keep fighting. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is hungry, but he feeds thousands of others. He grows weary, but promises rest to all who come to him. He is the Messiah, but he pays taxes. He is called the devil, but casts out demons. He dies the death of a sinner, but comes to save people from their sins. He is sold for 30 pieces of silver, but gives his life a ransom for many. He will not turn stones into bread for himself, but he gives his own body as bread to his people. God has provided victory over temptation. God has provided life from death. God has provided a way out of the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, who has endured temptation. All the same kind of temptations and all the the same lies and promises of temptation that we face yet without sin. We thank you that Jesus and his victory over sin has raised, been raised to your right hand where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And we thank you that there, at your right hand, we find a man. A man who has trusted you and been vindicated in that trust. A man who offers us the victory that he himself has won. The freedom to say no to sin and yes to you. Father, we pray that you would purify our hearts to seek you for your glory and for your worthiness and for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.